You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up, y'all? Hey. Hey. Hey, what did you have for, bre- <laughs> what, what, what did you have for breakfast this morning, JT? A smoothie. Macy makes these awesome smoothies every morning. I love them. Oh, wow. Okay. Smoothie time, smoothie time. Mm-hmm. Jen, what about you? Not a breakfast girl. Okay. All right. Fair yeah. enough. How Fair about enough. you, Kyle? Breakfast taco. Oh. With a hot sauce that was too hot to eat at breakfast. Did uh, you buy it or did you make it? No, I bought it. Yeah, okay. I bought it. I, I do make breakfast tacos, but not as good as this one. This one was good. A good breakfast taco. Like, do you, my favorite breakfast tacos are bacon breakfast tacos. Oh. Can you get good breakfast tacos in Colorado? Oh, yeah. Tacos are a okay. big thing here. Okay. okay. All right. Cool, man. That's good to know. When we come up there, we expect that you're going to buy some breakfast tacos then. With I've got bacon. a really good, I've got a really good relationship with our facilities guy here that takes care of a lot of our facilities at our church. And every Tuesday he brings me, he lives down in Denver uh, in, in a largely Hispanic community. And he brings me the best breakfast tacos or burritos. Just, really? Oh man. They're so good. Now, how far is Denver proper from where you're at? Because I guess 15, I thought- About 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Oh, oh, really? That close? Yeah. We're about as close to- Denver as you are to Dallas. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't think I realized that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was more of like a flower mound to Dallas kind of situation. Mm-mm. Hey, Kyle. Yeah. What are we going to talk about today? <laughs> <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> perfect, perfect, perfect. Let's get to it. I like I like how you did that, Jen. It was subtle and professional. Witty all- and an end to the banter, all in one. Absolutely. Okay, so we've been journeying along. You guys have been following along with us. Uh, we've been kind of following along the story of Abraham right now in Genesis 12 through 50 this season. If you've missed some of the earlier episodes, don't feel the need to pause this and go listen to those before you come back. But I will say, if there are parts of the story that we tell today, and you're like, who are those characters? Who are those places? What's that backstory? Well, you should check out some of the episodes we've done earlier this season. And if you want to go even further back in season five, we were doing Genesis 1 through 11. So we'd love for you to go back and check those out. But today we're going to be looking specifically at the birth and sacrifice of Isaac. And now to do this, Jen, we're about to have to do something that you do not like when I do. I do I want- not like it. I, I want to confess, I'm skipping over a part of this story. And we can, can, can we hit it real fast? Yeah. And, okay, great. So Genesis 20 is the story of Abraham and Abimelech. And it feels a lot like a carbon copy of the story that we had with Abraham and Pharaoh in Egypt. When Abraham comes in and is like, Sarah is way too good looking. They're going to kill me and yeah. take her. And he essentially says, pretend that you're my sister. And uh, that ends up incurring judgment upon uh, Egypt in that earlier story. And in this story with Abimelech, he does the same, he does the same thing. He yeah. does it over again. Yeah. So basically all we're seeing, first of all, that term Abimelech just means it's, it was the title for a foreign ruler, like, a, 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 like Pharaoh is the title of an Egyptian ruler. So it, hmm, Abimelech is not a guy. No, it's a title. And that's why you're going to see Abimelech come back later and you're like, that dude must be so old by now, but it's a different... It's really? Probably a different ruler. Yeah. Okay. I did not know that. I thought that I honestly just thought, oh, that must have been a very a common name. Yeah. Name. Yeah. 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 And so, really quickly, because we do have a lot to cover, we want to get to chapter 21. But I think a lot of times people are like, why is this story here? 
Um, and really what we're seeing is, uh, you know, once again, uh, it gets sorted out in a very similar manner and we see the non, uh, the non-believer, the, the, the um, the pagan for all intents and purposes acting more righteously than the God fearer as we've seen throughout the narrative. But you get this, this almost exactly the same story. Why? Because it's reiterating for us um, that God perseveres in his faithfulness to his covenant, no matter what. The thing that makes this particular retelling, you know, where Abraham goes through the same pattern again, what's so gross about it uh, is that based on the timing of when God said that uh, the baby would be born in all likelihood she's pregnant when this happens so uh it's it's not not great okay so yeah but 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 they make it through this encounter and in genesis 21 we read the lord visited sarah as he had said and when was this that he said just as a reminder jt when had the lord said he was going to visit sarah a year ago right a year ago yeah that's what we talked about in the last episode and here he is fulfilling his promise and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. I just want to pause here. This this gives me real, like, Mary vibes. Is the Sarah story kind of a proto-Mary story? Because Genesis 21, 1 through 2, really feels that way, doesn't it? Tell me how you're seeing that connection. Well, so like this idea of the Lord has visited Sarah. He has spoken to her. And this idea that, like, whether I know that we don't have an, a, a miraculous, we have a miracle conception here, although mm-hmm. it is not by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. right? So he's provided a child, but we don't have reason to think that he's provided that child apart from Abraham and Sarah's life together, right? Right. Okay. Right. But it's miraculous in the sense that she is completely infertile by all measures. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess, I guess I just feel, and maybe this is just larger Sarah's story. And I feel it really pronounced by the time that we get here, which is like Sarah's story seems very reflective. It's like, but the, the obstacle that's being overcome for Sarah is different than the obstacle that's being overcome for Mary. The obstacle that's being overcome for Mary is that she's a virgin and that doesn't change in the conception of Christ, the son. And the obstacle that's being overcome for Sarah is that she's barren. And I think also there's a real contrast made between Sarah's response to the word of the Lord and Mary's response to the word of the Lord. So to answer your question, yes, absolutely. We should look for parallels because we know that Isaac is going to be a type of Christ. The child is going to be presented to us as a type of Christ, the the only son of the father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we look at this, though, what we see is Sarah, whose God does not hear and does not see, who does believe that many things are too hard for the Lord. And then when Mary Mary shows up in the New Testament, we see that she believes that God does indeed hear and see and that nothing is impossible with God. In fact, she that's part of the, the story there in the Gospels. Right, right. So she's the, she's, um, her faith corresponds to, to Sarah's unbelief. Yep. And so Abraham calls the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And so this is kind of a a really... There's not a lot of sweet moments in this story. I got to be honest. This is one of those kind of tender moments in a story that does not have a lot of tender, sweet moments. I mean, it's like Sarah's laughing, she's celebrating, 
Abraham's laughing. He's celebrating. They're consecrating this child to the Lord. But then this story kind of gets spoiled a little bit, doesn't it? Because of Sarah's contempt for Hagar. Like, that's where it goes. Mm-hmm. Anything that we want to say about Isaac or about this particular here with Sarah laughing and... Yeah, go ahead. I was say, in, in verse nine, you've got, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. And again, we have kind of this theme here that we saw from our last episode in the last chapter. You see that that here in verse six, God has made laughter for me. And so there's this connection from laughter to laughter to laughter. That's his name. Mm-hmm. And this laughing that Ishmael is doing is not a playful laughing. It's in all likelihood a, a mocking laughing. He's mm-hmm. mocking He's mocking his his half-brother, which is actually what's going to get him and his, his mom expelled from Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac's presence, mm-hmm. which is, is now going to lead to, to an exile where God is going to have to preserve them and meet them in the wilderness once again. And so what you see here is God's going to be kind, even in the midst of Ishmael mocking and laughing at Isaac. So in verse 10, it says, so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. And I just, when I was reading that in preparation for this, I mean, there's lots that you could, that I think we should talk about theologically, but even just the the heart of a father for his son, mm-hmm. Here you have Abraham who who loves Ishmael and has has a, an account for Ishmael. And just a few chapters ago saying, well, maybe can, can't Ishmael live before you? Can Ishmael be my heir? And then he, he sees his son laughing at his other son, Isaac, mm. mocking him. And now Sarah says, get these people out of my sight. I just imagine the heartbreak that that would have been for Abraham. But God, but we see here then in verse 13, it says, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring, which again, I think is another uh, seed of us seeing how God is going to, to make one new man out of these two sons. I do think we're seeing God be compassionate in a less than best case scenario, right? Like we can acknowledge the the, hum, the humanity of Abraham and the way that he feels about Ishmael. Um, but Ishmael is the product of, of poor judgment. Um, you know, he's the, and, and so um, these feelings would not be happening. Like there would not be a child if they had obeyed the Lord. And now things are much more complicated than they otherwise would have had to have been. And I only mention that because as the story of Genesis and the and this line continues and we walk through Isaac's story and Jacob's story, we'll see this continued theme of this would have been a lot easier if you had done it the way that God had intended. Uh, and anytime the pattern is broken and you get a situation with multiple lines of offspring from more than one woman, there is always strife that arises. Yeah. So yeah. this is this is hinting toward what we're going to see when we get to the to the Jacob slash Joseph cycle of the of the section of the book. And and even though Abraham probably does have a place in his heart for Sarah or for excuse me for Hagar and for Ishmael, mm-hmm. what happens next, even after he's heard from God, is is tough to read. It says in verse 14, Abraham rose early in the morning, took a bread, took bread and a skin of water, gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Uh, it says when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went on and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Now, 
this is this is a, this is a heartbreaking scene. I mean, mm-hmm. she Abraham has essentially sent her alone with this boy into the wilderness, and Hagar has pretty much resigned herself that she's about to die. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't want I don't want to witness the death of this child. I'm going to go mm-hmm. put him over there, mm-hmm. and I will go over here because mm-hmm. we have no more water. Right? Mm-hmm. And there's nothing for it. Like, there's nothing for us. Mm-hmm. They've, she's been here before, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In Genesis chapter 16, uh, she is forced to leave again because of Sarah. And mm-hmm. similarly, in verse 7 of chapter 16, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And here we're going to see he's going to provide a spring of water for her, mm-hmm. which is just, I think, a beautiful picture of how how God, again, he's meeting his people in the midst, uh, I guess, uh, his people, is, I'm using that term broadly here, but he's meeting those who he's showing mercy to uh, compassionately. He's he's condescending to them so that they can enjoy his presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That and he's, uh, uh, yeah, he's being incredibly gracious and tender, right? Well, he's being uh, faithful to the covenant that he made. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, he said he was going to he was going to preserve the life of the child, mm-hmm. and now he will against all odds. And there, I think there are a few hints here. Um, when we get to the story of Moses and his mother placing him in a basket and putting him in the river, I picture her doing the same mental math because it's interesting that it's not Moses' mother but his sister who watches him be drawn out mm-hmm. um, by the princess. It's as though his mother couldn't watch. And I think we see that same kind of tender scene playing out here. Yeah. So the Lord speaks to her because it says that God heard the voice of the boy. And it says the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God opened her eyes. She saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water, gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And so this is kind of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is the finish line of Hagar and Ishmael's journey in the book of Genesis, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know that we come across Hagar and Ishmael again in this story, do we? Nope. But we will see other similar characters as we move along for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it goes on to say there that at that time, Abimelech and is this, should I say Fikal or Fickle? You say it however you want, Kyle. This is your safe place. Uh, I'm going to say at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the <laughs> commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear. So there's a treaty that's cut here. What's the mm-hmm. significance of this treaty with this Abimelech and Phicol? What, what, like, what is this? How does this play itself out? Because there is some... Uh, this is an important way of Abraham establishing himself in this region, right? Yeah, he's establishing himself that even though he's an outsider, what we're seeing in the way that this is transacted is that he's a person who is respected and that he's recognized as a man of God. So I think that's one of the functions of this story is to is to show us that he is someone whose character was such that people regarded him as safe to do business with, right. that he was a desirable neighbor. Uh, but it does another thing for us as well. It gives us a sense that time is passing. It says, and Abraham so, sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And that's an important time marker for us because it sets us up for the next part of the story. 
Right. And again, this is one of those narrative details that can be overlooked to us in terms of its significance, but would not have been overlooked by the original audience who was about to enter this land <laughs> where, yes. where these tribes were. So like they're looking back. Now, and keep this in mind, this is significant because they, they're kind of walking into a land that they have never been to before, mm -hmm. but that their father, the father of their nation, has had been, been to. had mm -hmm. reputation, established wealth, had treaties, new Staked people, a claim. Staked a claim. Mm -hmm. This is, it's further kind of solidifying in the mind of Israel. This land belongs to you. I it wanted belongs. you to say this land is our land so badly. <laughs> I, uh, I, I this heard land it. Is I, your land. <laughs> From the Euphrates. Wow. That's, that's another June Wilkins singing moment. We're, we're going to have, eventually we're going to have enough of those to merit our album. Good singer. Trickleback. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh -huh. It's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. Um, but this is further solidifying in the mind of Moses's key audience here. Hey, the land that we're going to is going to be full of new people and new places. Right. Let me introduce some of those people and those places to you right now because they're about to be our neighbors. And mm -hmm. Abraham, uh, they know that they may not know your name, but they know the name of Abraham. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important because it's easy for us to read past that and be like, why do I care about some treaty that Abraham had with Abimelech around some tamarisk tree <laughs> in Beersheba? And it's like, well, you probably you may not care about this, but God has told Israel, these newly freed slaves, that they actually are his chosen people and he's giving them this land, including that little tamarisk tree in Beersheba. Mm -hmm. uh, and but around that tree isn't just Abraham and an altar, it's gonna be the Philistines as well. And they're gonna have a lot of problems with that. Mm -hmm. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, uh, and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, we got to pause here. We got to pause here for a couple of reasons. One, I'm inclined to think that this is the I, I I see this as an inclusio, the back end of an inclusio or an envelope as the two most significant calls of God for Abraham to go. He called him to go from the place that he had in Ur to the land that he was going to give them. And then this second one, which is mirror kind of in 22, is the second most significant call that Abraham hears from God to go. Mm -hmm. And that's not, it's not go to a land that I will give you. He's, he's in that land at present. It's go and take your son to Moriah, that these are two different tests of God, one of which was the call in Genesis 12, and the second of which is the uh, the, the test of sacrificing Isaac. Uh, and sometimes we call that feature, I don't know that this is technically an inclusio, but Sometimes you can use that fret, that word to mm -hmm. talk about two things that begin and end something mm -hmm. and that function to help kind of frame the narrative between. And so I think that call in Genesis 12 is kind of framed by this call in Genesis 22 to go and to do the next big test. I have a little note here that I think is a sweet way to summarize it. And don't give me credit for this because I'm sure I probably copied it from somewhere else. But it says um, in, in that opening scene, Abraham is called to let go of his past. And in this scene, he's called to let go of his future. Hmm. I think that's a nice way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Isaac represents everything forward looking for him. 
That's right. And it's a little bit easier to see in the original language, not that I've done a ton of work in it, but but I did look at this a little bit, that not, not only is that true, and I think that preaches well, but there's a sense in which the, the way that the uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and uh, Genesis 22, 1 through 3, function the same way, where he's saying, go, go from your father, go from the land that you have. And he's basically, mm-hmm. uh, what's the right word? Uh, coming like microscopically close to what he's going to ask him to do here in Genesis chapter 22. It's also important to note that the land of Moriah, Second uh, Chronicles 3.1 tells us that that's actually the place where uh, the temple is going to be built. Uh, mm-hmm. David, David's son, Solomon's temple is built. So the very place where sacrifices are going to be made uh, in the future at the temple of God, the Holy of Holies, is also the place where God is instructing Abraham to go sacrifice his son. Now, now we have to pause here. Both of those were really, really good points. Um, and I want to pause here to do something we've had, we, we did with our story of Sodom, but I also want to do it here because it comes up, it, it comes up a lot in popular level problems with Christianity. And it is, it can be a genuine question, even for good faith operators that are trying to like read the Bible. Why does God ask Abraham to do this? Doesn't this seem isn't this wrong? I mean, like, isn't God different from the gods of the nations? Like, uh, when we get to thinking through the ancient Near Eastern peoples, we'll often say Yahweh's character was such that he valued the dignity of life, uh, right? And the, the false gods, like gods like Molech and the gods of other ancient Near Eastern tribes, there were there, they did not value life that way. There were child sacrifices. So is this Yahweh essentially demonstrating that he's not unlike the false gods of the world? Because he tells Abraham, go and sacrifice your son Isaac, the son that he had promised him. So JT, if I, if I can't to you. And let's say I'm a good faith operator, not a bad faith operator. I'm not some guy who's just trying to troll you. But I come to you and I say, JT, I was reading this passage. You've told me that in the Old Testament, Yahweh was different from the false gods of the world. You've said that his character was different and that he, he was different than that. But in this story, he tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his son, Isaac. Doesn't that seem like he's essentially falling prey to the same things that make these gods evil and wicked? How would you respond? Right. Well, that's one of the things that makes this a trial because you're exactly right. The God of Moloch was the God that demanded child sacrifice as a part of uh, worship. And so here in this trial that is coming upon Abraham, it's a trial to see, are you going to be obedient to what I command? And it's important to note, I don't want to get to the end of the story too fast. I don't want to get there slowly. He doesn't. God does not demand child sacrifice. God mm-hmm. is going to be the God who provides a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so though it might look like at times God is, is operating like the gods of this world, the false gods of this world, uh, importantly, he's not. He's actually operating the exact opposite way of the God of Moloch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would just also add, I think people often read this as, this is the this is the test that, that Abraham goes through. But the reality is this is just, the most recent test that Abraham is going through and that this test is actually a greater expression of the test that he has been facing all along. And it's going to ask and answer, is anything too hard for the Lord in a, Mm -hmm. in a deeper way? Um, And, and I think one of the, this is one of those times where um, it's important for us to, to look at um, frankly, other passages in scripture to help with our understanding here. And thankfully in Hebrews, we we find out, we get insight into exactly what's going on in, in the head of Abraham. Now we don't have to look at that yet. Do you want to go further into the story before we go there? 
Yeah, let's do that. So Abraham kind of packs up, he packs up his stuff. He brings some servants along with him. And of course he brings Isaac and they start to make the journey. And it says on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And he tells the servants, hey, you kind of stick it out over here. Uh, stay here with the donkey, guard the stuff. We're going to come again after this. Abraham took the word of the, the, the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac's son. He took in his hand the, ni- uh, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, uh, Father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And I think that's an important point to note that even right here, Abraham is trusting that God is going to provide this sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. He says, we'll go over there and worship and come again to you. So it's like, he he knows, I'm going up this mountain and we're coming back. That's Abraham's he, belief, he, right? He doesn't know what's going to happen, but his belief is no matter what transpires, Isaac comes back from this alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of God's provision. Yeah, and 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 so that's what that's what Hebrews 11, 9 um, bears testimony to, that Abraham believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. So it sounds like probably what Abraham's, most likely scenario was, is God is going to require this of me for reasons that I don't understand, but God will raise him from the dead. You're right, Jen. Just to clarify, if somebody looks it up, it's Hebrews eleven nineteen. What did I say? Nine. Nine, oh, nine, is, nine is where it says by faith, he went to the land and promised. So it's still about Abraham. Oh, yeah. 19, sorry. Just, just a few down. Something else to note, Kyle, just if we're, we've talked about typology before in this, there's a lot of typology going on here or to use Bible project language, hyperlinks. You see in verse four on the third day, there's third day language all over the Old Testament. This is God's people inherit the promised land on the third day. Hezekiah is is extremely ill and sick. And on the third day, he's kind of given this picture of a resurrection-like healing. Uh, Ruth, same thing. On the third day, she is is healed. And then also, or Esther, Esther, Jonah, three days and three nights. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. of course you've got Jesus. And then here you have wood being laid on his back for a sacrifice. So there's a lot of Christological, uh, when you get to to Paul uh, or Luke and Acts, they're picking up on a lot of this. Like when it says, some some people get uh, frustrated with, Paul and say, on the third day, Jesus was raised according to the scriptures. And they're like, well, where? Where in the scriptures? Because it doesn't say in the scriptures he's going to raise on the third day. He's aware of all of these types of what God does on the third day. And so when we get to Jesus's resurrection on the third day, we're supposed to see, or on the third day here, that should be a clue to you that God is connecting these stories uh, in some meaningful ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it says, when they came to the place that they'd been journeying to, of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound his son, uh, bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Behind it was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of a son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So yes, God does provide. He, just like what Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. That's exactly what Abraham does and right, or what God does and right in the 12th hour, right? Like it says, as he reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter him, that's when the angel of the Lord stops him, calls out mm-hmm. to him, right? Abraham, Abraham. And we see this phrase repeated 
like a few times. Here I am. Like when, and I was noticing this when I was reading it yesterday, Genesis 22, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And then in uh, earlier in this passage, we hear, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And then here with the angel of the Lord, he said, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. I, I, thought, I just thought that was an interesting little feature. I couldn't like derive any sort of like conclusion from that. But you do hear that phrase, here I am, three different times. God with Abraham, Isaac with Abraham, and then the angel of the Lord in Abraham. And similar language in Isaiah 6. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, all, it's actually all over. I mean, it's in Samuel. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's all over that pattern. The real point here is that the Lord does provide and he provides through this ram who's caught in a thicket by his thorns and that's what's offered as a sacrifice as opposed to Isaac. I promise I'm not trying to be a thorn in anybody's side, but I just want to point something out that it's just my interpretation. Doesn't have to be Jen and Kyle's. (laughs) But here it is, the angel of the Lord speaking to Abraham. uh, in, In verse 11, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham from heaven and that's where then Abraham says, here I am. And then if you jump down to verse 12, or verse the uh, end of verse 12, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So the angel of the Lord is very closely identified with God himself. Uh, and then Abraham lifted up his eyes, looked, behold, there's a ram, the substitute, something that's going to be provided for him. And then it says, the Lord will provide as it is said on this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I just want to note for, for my interpretive purposes, if this is a Christophany, If this is the second person of the Trinity speaking to Abraham as the angel of the Lord, this is the mount where he becomes the provision for all of Abraham's descendants. He is the one speaking to Abraham and to Isaac, and he becomes the very fulfillment of the one who says on the mount, and this is the same mountain, of course, this is the mount where God will provide. And then that makes so much, I think, so much more meaningful. Even the psalmist saying, uh, look to the hills from where else does our help come from? And as we look to the Mount of the Lord, it's not that Isaac is sacrificed, but obviously Christ is the one who has the wood laid upon him and sacrificed for our sins. That's a beautiful thought. And I have to ask how you, how, how you think that Kyle and I would have read this. You don't think the angel of the Lord is the son? But hold on. We definitely think that God provided the ram and that the ram is- Oh, no, 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 that. I'm just saying if the the angel of the Lord, I think you agree with 98% of what I said there. Mm -hmm. You don't think that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ speaking, saying, I will be the substitute. I think it might be. But but the angel of the Lord in this story is not the substitute. Right, he's going to be. The right, angel okay. of the Lord is this. Oh, okay. Okay. So you're saying that the, in this instance, if this is a Christophany, then essentially the, the Christophany there is, is, uh, he's providing commentary uh, regarding the ram and the thicket and the provision. And for what he is he, eventually going to do. Okay. So he will eventually be the fulfillment of this. So here's the ram now, right? But right. one day I will, like, essentially, I'm going to fulfill what would have been done on this mountain to Isaac in myself. That's exactly right, because I okay. am the seed. I am, I mean, and that gets makes better sense of Galatians chapter three, makes better sense of Paul's argument of the gospel proclaimed to Abraham beforehand that this isn't just a messenger of God. This is the messenger of God who will be the substitute. Okay, I see what you're I see what you're saying. I, I, I definitely would be in complete agreement, and I'm pretty sure Jen is too, that the ram in the thicket here is like is a picture of the substitutionary atonement of right. Christ. The only thing whether, I'm saying that might be in addition to what you're saying is that the one who is speaking about the ram and pointing to the ram is the one who one day will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yep. 
Yep. Here I am <laughs> making dramatic- your point and Jen's throwing stuff. <laughs> Jen <laughs> dramatically smacked my microphone by accident, but visually it looked as though I was reacting to JT. It looked like Jen was so mm-hmm. over this conversation. Uh, over, I am over this conversation, but, but guys, I was not Don't you see to... the interpretive beauty there? Uh, JT, you just said we were 98% in the same place. And I have to ask how much more time you want to devote to the 2% difference. Because I, I just think that this, I mean, like we're talking about the, the But heart. all of the things that you've just expressed are things that I would feel free to associate with, with this angel of the Lord language without having to parse it down to the level that you're wanting to parse it down to. Unless the text wants us to. <laughs> okay. Oh, look at the time. So here we are. Uh, and we've the had Bible, the most- The Bible is more beautiful than you want it to be, Jen. Okay. Oh. We, we've got the most important part of the story down here at the end and picking up at the end of the chapter. Are you going to read the names for us, Kyle? Oh, gosh, Jen. Um, <laughs> so God, is, God <laughs> has provided the sacrifice. And after that, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And we're getting all of this that we heard in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17. Mm-hmm. It's been repeated over and over again. And the angel of the Lord is repeating it once again. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your offspring as the sand is on the seashore. Your, the off, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed through them because you have obeyed me. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose, went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham and oh gosh, behold, uh, Milka also <laughs> has born, has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz. Those Buzz. are my two favorite names, Uz and Buzz. Uh, okay, Uz and Buzz. <laughs> Buzz, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Camuel. Camuel, like how do you name the first two, Uz and Buzz? And then you're like, let's mix it up a little with Camuel. Camuel, <laughs> Camuel, the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, <laughs> Bethel, Bethel, father, Rebecca, these eight, Milka bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaim. Tehash and Meka. That was so good, Kyle. Why is this the most important part? You're, you, this is. She lured you in, apparently. No, I'm you just better, wondering if of all of those names that you were rolling off, did one of them roll off your tongue a little more easier than others? Uh, Chesed. No, dude. Look at <laughs> verse 23. <laughs> uh, Rebecca. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so we're already getting a, and you know, here's what's up next on our episode of Crazy Stories in the Book of Genesis. We're getting a little preview. We just got a setup for what we're about to see. That we're going to, that Rebecca's going to be a featured player as we move forward in this story. But uh, but before we do that, we're going to have to walk through the death of the matriarch mm-hmm. of Israel, mm-hmm. which is Sarah, which we'll table for our next episode. Uh, but is there any concluding thoughts here? I mean, I really do feel like this is a passage, you know, um, I don't want to be all weird about this passage. And I know that sometimes I can get a little bit weird uh, with some of this stuff, but you know the, that uh, a Danish philosopher, Kierker, Soren Kierkegaard, wrote a whole book uh, on essentially the faith displayed by Abraham here in this story. It was really an expose on 
the kind of the radical faith that Abraham demonstrates here. Uh, and when you look at this, it, it does appear to to be both in the New Testament and throughout the history of the church, that this is kind of the shining moment of Abraham's faith and trust in God, right? That like he's willing to like plod up the mountain uh, in confident trust and belief that God is going to provide, Mm -hmm. that he's going to do this. And it's not as if Abraham has been purged of all sin or purged of all doubt or all skepticism. But this is a really significant moment where you do see that the patient work of God through Abraham's trials, tribulations, his sin, his own failures, that God has been kind to continue to speak to Abraham, to direct Abraham. And this is a different Abraham. This is Abraham as we found him in Genesis 12, when God says, go, and he goes. This is not the Abraham uh, who appears before Pharaoh in Egypt or who appears before Abimelech or, uh, uh, yeah, this is a guy who has been, he's, he's been changed. He's been transformed a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. But I have, I, I have a genuine question, an interpretive question that I'm hoping that you guys can answer. It has to do with the impassibility question. Um, Abraham clearly here in the typology is supposed to be a type of God the Father. Are we supposed to read this part of the story so that we can learn something about how the father processes the death of the uh, of, of Jesus? I'm going to say no. I, I'm going to say no, and I'm not going to say it because I don't think it, uh, because I feel like the conversation on impassibility is settled and, you know, because God is impassable, this couldn't be that reading. But I would say that the way that Abraham moves forward with the sacrifice of Isaac uh, in this account, it doesn't strike me as, because the whole thing here, it seems to be Abraham has belief and faith. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the defining feature of how Abraham is processing what's happening. Whereas with God the Father, there is no faith or belief that has to be exercised. Maybe I'm missing your question, but it seems like the key thing that Moses wants us to see is that Abraham was willing to do this, even though it was costly, because of his belief and faith that God would provide. And it feels like for that reason, I'd be reluctant to impose or to, to stretch the, the type of Abraham as a God the Father figure here because it seems like the defining feature of the narrative is his faith. But God the Father doesn't have to exercise faith in the giving of the son. I mean, but it's all that take your son, your only son business. And I, I'm, I'm really not trying to be, I, I'm, I'm really not wholly playing devil's advocate. I'm really am asking because I've heard this passage taught more than once uh, in which there's almost an attempt to humanize the experience of God the Father in, in the crucifixion of Christ. Have you heard this? Do you think I'm... Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't know that I love the idea of Abraham being a type of God the Father here because mm-hmm. it it removes the inseparable operations of God the Father, mm-hmm. Son, and Spirit. And so I don't I don't love that. The way I've been thinking about this passage recently is actually it's a uh, one of my friends wrote an article about uh, Genesis, the Genesis of resurrection hope. And I think one of the reasons Abraham is able to move kind of and prod up this mountain with confidence is because in chapter 21, he sees the seeds of resurrection insofar as God brings life death. out of yeah, death. Yeah, life from death. Mm-hmm. And so here he knows, and this is what uh, Hebrews eleven nineteen is is articulating, is he knows my son's already been raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. And if this son is going to be 
going to be killed. He's going to be raised from that also. I'm coming down this mountain with my son, who is, who is Isaac. And so in some sense, his faith has already been made sight. Yeah. In a way that that hadn't wasn't true of his life previously, he he mm-hmm. has seen the son resurrected, and I think that's a picture for us as disciples of Jesus. Though there is going to be a day, one day, when our faith will be sight. Uh, the author of Hebrews tells us, but we also have more sight than than many of the Old Testament patriarchs that we've been, we've experienced the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and we've been given this, this deposit, this seal of our future resurrection hope that should give us more confidence in being obedient to God's call upon our lives today. If, if the gospel is not just justification, but sanctification, we, mm-hmm. we are in a better place than they were. We do not have the law on tablets. We have the law written on our hearts through the indwelling presence of the Spirit. And obedience for us is something that we get helped along with with the Holy Spirit. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Okay, let me just ask, that's a beautiful thought and I agree with it. Let me ask one follow-up question. Would we then say that from that framework of the certainty of the outcome, can we draw any lines to the operation of the Father um, in, in what happens on the cross? And I'm asking that because I'm telling you, I, I see these kinds of stories used to in, in an attempt to sort of almost like bring God down to our level. So I just want to know, is there a right way and a wrong way? Do you just avoid it altogether? What do you think? Gosh, I... Maybe, maybe I, I want to think on this more because I truly, I've never really thought about it. Uh, I'm highly reluctant because it seems like the focus is so squarely on Abraham's faith and the provision being with the ram being so clearly a type of Christ. But also this just may be that I have a bit of a, I may have a reluctance on, oh, Old Testament God the Father analogs. Like, I don't know that I've given that as much thought as going like, okay, where is God the Father in this account? Uh, So... So that that really it may not it may, maybe it is there and I'm just reluctant to see it because I haven't developed a muscle. But it also seems like part of the uniqueness of Christ the center or re, we don't just do a Christological and a Christotelic reading of the Old Testament mm-hmm. because it's nice and fun. We do a Christological and Christotelic reading of the Old Testament because Jesus reads the Bible Christologically and Christotelically and teaches others to do the same. And Christ is the center of the unveiling of God in the Bible. Uh, and so it feels to me like uh, I don't know that just because, because I also don't feel like I'm looking for pneumatological types in the Old Testament either. I'm looking for instances of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit displayed, but I'm not necessarily looking for like, oh, I wonder if that was an instance of a, a pneumatological reading of this. Was that the Holy Spirit or was that a type of the Holy Spirit or type of the one who was to come in the Holy Spirit. So I don't know. I, I feel like I'm rambling here, but I, I would say generally I'm reluctant on this. Okay, well, I'm not going to say anything else about that because I, when we get into uh, actually the next part of this story, I have another proposition for you around this idea of types for you to either say you love or hate. Cool? Cool. I'll hold you to it. I'll hold you to it. I don't well, think you're ne- gonna have to. In <laughs> <And> the next, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think so either. Um, oh, uh, JT, interesting. Are you saying I have a topic that I won't let go of, and I just keep talking about? I'm just saying the topic I keep talking about keeps coming up in the Bible. <laughs> God, God, God bless the listeners. Yes. Um, listen, um, hey, thank you for sticking along with us. If you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media at Knowing Faith Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, you can. 
can find us on Patreon. If you're interested in more behind the scenes content, we do a monthly newsletter uh, and some other stuff. Uh, patrons, uh, some patron tiers get early access to the episodes ad free. Uh, and so if you're interested in that kind of thing, you can go to patreon.com slash knowing faith podcast. We hope you enjoy the discussion today. Grace and peace.